Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Hello, I'm Rebecca Tor, and welcome to the Emerald Podcast Series. Academic publishing has taken steps to make research communication more equitable and accessible, but there are still noticeable barriers. In this episode, we're going to discuss how we can improve equality, diversity and inclusion in scholarly research and communications. We will explore how we can promote underrepresented voices, improve equity in research funding and ensure equity in reviewing. I'm joined by three special guests. Jacob Feltzfus Christensen, Director of Diversity Unity, Sapna Mawaha, who is the board member on Armour UK and IDIS, which is the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion in Science and Health, and Kim Eggleton, Head of Peer Review and Research Integrity at IOP Publishing. Jacob, I'm just going to come to you first, and I thought we could talk about start talking about um, diversity unity um, what it's about and sort of what diversity and research means to you yeah well thank you for having me here today um, I'm usually on the on the other side being the by being the host of the podcast so sitting here is a bit uh, daunting <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway uh, yes I'm the director of uh, diversity unity and uh, we run as you said uh, workshops and we started um, the company back in in January 2020 um after we had uh, Lachlan I, I I work with who's in, in Birmingham we started talking about this whole thing that when we were both working in research support offices and we there was a lot of talk about projects and how they sometimes failed and we talked an incredible amount of time about budgets and uh, worked on budgets forever and ever and one thing that's certain when you work with budgets is that this is the absolutely only way things are not going to play out uh, but we projects didn't fail because of bad projects they failed because of bad collaboration and we are both openly gay men and there was a lot of diversity at that point at least was equal to more women in research. And that is, of course, important. I'm not saying that, but it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, so so that is why we uh, we decided to, to uh, dive into this. And also because sometimes it's just easier when we have to talk about difficult topics like this to have people from the outside to join and, and say all the uncomfortable truths. Um, so when we talk about research, I think, or diversity in research, I think there are two main Oh, three main things around one is the team and or the consortium if we're in an international project um then of course the research itself the the content of the research that we consider diversity in that and then finally i think it's in management and all the things surrounding the uh, the 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 research uh, that is in, in, important and when we talk about research we of course talk about gender but we talk uh, protected characteristics or personal characteristics broad, broadly, so race, uh, gender, uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, et cetera, et cetera, but also national cultures because today research is just, inter- international is the new black in, 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 in research, and that's just the way it is, but that also complicates things because culturally we don't have the same approaches to particular things like race, 
gender identity and sexual orientation across the globe, and that makes this whole thing uh, incredibly complicated, uh, incredibly interesting, but also incredibly complicated. The the moment you put you put human beings into the equation, uh, things just get complicated. Fantastic, thank you. I think it's really interesting to sort of hear how you sort of started um, Diversity Unity and sort of what you focus on and actually trying to make some sense of it for people. Um, so where do you begin? And um, I know you run lots of different workshops. Um, yeah. I think there's one called How Diversity Can Improve Your Research Strategy. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you can sort of um, talk a little bit about that and, and some of the aims of that workshop and what you really hope to achieve. Sure. Um, I think the reason we developed this one is because there's a lot of focus on the application process because at the end of the day, money runs a show and all universities are dependent on external funding. It's it's just so incredibly important for research careers and universities more broadly or other research institutions. But when we do it like that, it easily becomes an add-on. And particularly, universities are often incredibly conservative institutions. And to some extent, they probably have to be. But it means that in these, when it comes to these topics, they often have to get pushed by funders. But funders are also a bit hesitant on some of these issues. And this means that we're sometimes going incredibly slow. But then when an institution or a funder decides to move things like Horizon Europe with the gender equality plans, even if it wasn't as great a thing as we had hoped, but now they require gender analysis in every project. And we can just see how universities and researchers are always a a bit behind on these topics. So the aim of this workshop was to put people a bit in front of these topics. So it doesn't become a a last-minute thing you add on or try to solve or say or have a generic paragraph about, oh, yeah, we know the gender balance isn't really good, but we'll try to do something about that by recruiting more women as, as PhDs. Because that's, that's not good enough anymore. And as I said, it's, it's about more than, than this. So this is a try to trying to help people to look at recruitment strategies, gender analysis, or more broadly on diversity, because right now you can get away with gender. But if you look at the policy documents from particularly Horizon Europe, but also private funders, uh, particularly in Europe, the UK, US, Canada, gender isn't enough. So, and it's coming. So this is a way to, for people to prepare a bit some of these issues and also because some of these issues are just so politicized you really have to be careful about these things and that's probably a good thing but sometimes researchers don't just don't realize this because in many ways research on universities is just a parallel universe where things doesn't work like it does in the rest of society I mean, listening to you, it's just such an eye opener to sort of, you know, the world that that you are obviously you're in and, and, you know, people that are in their own silos don't necessarily understand the breadth of of all these different issues. I think it's really it's really interesting just to sort of hear sort of what you do focus on and and what you you train or teach people um, to look out for. And um, I mean, in terms of making a difference, um, how do you think these workshops really sort of feed into um, EDI in, in research. Have you seen many sort of impacts from them? We have decided, uh, our motto a bit is that 
uh, we are ambitious in goals, but pragmatic in approach. So we try to be quite hands-on because when you talk to people around, it's not like, it's not because people are particularly evil and don't want to do anything about these topics. They just don't know how. So we try to be quite hands-on with, with some of these uh, topics. And if you look at international culture, for example, asking such a simple question as what is a meeting? What is the purpose of a meeting? Because that differs tremendously around the world. So have just opening these conversations, because we can't solve it all in a two or three hour workshop. Uh, we, we're, not, we're not that naive. We are quite naive, but not that, that naive. Um, but, but we can try to open some of these conversations because often it is a question of people not having a vocabulary and not knowing to ask the questions. So we, we have been part of some really interesting conversations where people come afterwards and say, we've never talked about these things before. But I also say often when we run workshops, we don't have any questions. And not because people don't have them, but it's just a lot of this is so new to people that they just they don't really know what to ask yet. So I think we're in the infancy of this topic and how to deal with it in, a, in a many ways. And then, of course, being I think it helps if you can be pragmatic and so tell people you can't solve it all and that's okay, but you have to start somewhere. Have some easy wins and do some some stuff and also say that we, we understand them, that, that this is, uh, can, be, can be tricky. And, and also understanding that this is a complex world I think one of the problems that have been before, and this is not because I have anything against bias training, because bias training is a tool among many, but I think bias training has, was for, has for a while been seen as the solution. And it's, 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 it's not that easy, and it's about career paths, and it's about incentive structures in academia, monoculture because of publication patterns, grants. It's so incredibly complex, so many things we have to change to, to make this work, but we have to start, uh, start somewhere. And we have decided the way we want to, to help is to give researchers and research managers some, some tools to start uh, working with this. I think it's absolutely incredible, the work that you're doing. And you know, we, we do definitely need more more sort of initiatives like this. And um, it sounds really interesting and um, definitely hope to hear a little bit more about that later on. Um, and want to thank you for that and move over to SAPNA um, and yourself. I mean, you've worked on various campaigns aimed at improving EDI in, in the research sector. And um, I was thinking specifically, you could talk about the name change campaign. I mean, this is something that Emerald has implemented and, and quite a lot of publishers, and I'm, I'm sure the numbers are growing now. I mean, we're starting to um, implement this. And I just wonder if you could sort of shine a light on, on what that name change campaign um, is all about and sort of some of the impacts it's had so far. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Rebecca. So the inclusive name change guidance um, has come out of EDIS. So for those of you who aren't familiar with EDIS, EDIS is EDI in Science and Health. Um, it was originally a coalition that was brought together between Wellcome, GlaxoSmithKline and the Francis Crick Institute. Um, it's now a coalition of over 20 members who've come together from different aspects of the sector with a passion for reducing inequalities in science and health. So we know that if we want to make a difference in terms of reducing inequalities in health outcomes, we have to make uh, a difference reducing inequalities at every stage of the process. So I really support what Jakob was saying about it being a very holistic approach. So everything from careers to participation to patients, we've got to look at the whole life cycle. Um, and the inclusive name change guidance was developed 
in collaboration with uh, the Trans Name Change Policy Group over in the US. Now, this project had a focus on, on trans people. What we were trying to do was um, reduce people being dead named, being um, exposed to harm because they were being outed as trans when they hadn't outed themselves. And so that was really our focus. But I've got to say, it's, it's a policy that's had um, benefits for a whole load of groups who change their names for all sorts of reasons. We know that, for example, in academia, you know, a lot of people will choose not to change their name, not because of any particular belief, but because actually it could impact their record, their publication record. So now that we've made that easier, you know, whether you've got married, whether you've got divorced, whether you've somebody, an international colleague where your name is represented differently, depending on where the world you are. Obviously, in the UK, we present our names in a particular format that isn't followed elsewhere. Um, there are lots of reasons you can change your name. And, and now people are able to to keep a hold of that track record much easier. They're able to, to claim credit for the work that they've done much more easily. So it's had benefits for lots of groups. Um, and it's really important, I think, to, to make sure that we are um, going in for the complex problem and not just trying to go for the easy wins as well. I think this has had, um, you know, really wide ranging impact for a lot of groups. And it was, you know, absolutely a sort of ground up campaign that came from lots of groups who had a passion in the area. And we worked really closely with lots of, of groups in the sector to, to make sure that we were including them along the way. Oh, I love the idea that an initiative like this has really benefited many more groups than you originally sort of thought it would do. And actually, for equity, just in general, I mean, that that is amazing, I think, such a contribution. And and probably the benefits will continue um, in, in so many ways that we would never have even thought about. And it's, it's such a, a big contribution. Um, and just sort of talking about the, the different groups that you're a board member of, um, what would you say these organisations are doing to promote equality, diversity and inclusion in, in research in, in other ways? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, I'll maybe go to my work with ARMA. So again, if people aren't familiar, ARMA is the Association of Research Managers and Administrators, and I'm the deputy chair there. Um, and I also chair our EDI advisory group. And, you know, we really have started with a lot of introspection within ARMA. Um, for us, it was really important that we um, were able to approach this with authenticity, with leadership, and to recognise that, you know, as a membership association, the reality is we don't have a lot of staff. We don't, we're not a very large organisation, but actually our ability to change things um, comes from, you know, that network that we've built. Um, you know, we, we've got less than 10 members of staff, but we've got 3,000 members across the country and we link into our international sister associations all over the world. So, you know, we started with, with some real introspection and putting the board through some quite um, strong training on things like um, on EDI in general, but also anti-racism, anti-ableism. And we eventually brought in our, you know, all of our volunteers who participate in our various governance and working groups and so on. Um, and we've also done initiatives like um, the most recent policy we approved was our inclusive recruitment policy, which was all about transforming how we recruit people into ARMA. Now that includes not just our staff, but also all of our volunteers. So we, we've made a conscious effort to, to remove those barriers to participation, to make sure that we do in future become 
a more representative organisation than we are now. So things like making sure we are sharing questions in every interview process in advance, making sure that we assess um, candidates on the basis of skills instead of experience, um, making sure that um, we are running a process, making sure that everybody who participates in that process has been through the training I was describing there. Um, so we've made lots of changes to how we operate. We've brought in an EDI policy. And I think one of the really important things for us was that the work that we were doing needed to be informed by a balance of lived experience and professional experience. I think often that's a balance that can go wrong. I think um, in organisations, often there is a tendency to have this work as an add-on. And again, going back to what Jakob was saying earlier about, you know, it gets shoved on the side of someone's job. It's something they're doing voluntarily on top of the day job. Organisations often don't put the resource behind it. They rely on people's lived experience, but people may well have lived experience of the barriers, but no experience of actually removing those barriers, which is a completely different um, ballgame. So it's important to have that balance, make sure, you know, we had our advisory group of experts, that we also were talking to our members. You know, we had some really interesting conversations, for example, um, in the run-up to the anti-racism training as we were talking with members about what their experiences were. And I think that's really important to bring um, people's real-life experiences together with, um, you know, people's real-life real, real life experience of, of getting getting things right and getting things to a better place. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, it'd be, be interesting to see um, what Kim says as well from a publishing point of view, because I want to sort of turn now to what publishers can do to further positive change. And um, it's very similar to Armour in terms of um, just looking for like what we can do, not just externally with our publishing practices and how we can change things there, but also internally, like what can we do to make the organisation a more diverse and inclusive place to work and and actually, it runs through everything that we do. And so just talk a little bit about what Emerald's been doing, and then we'll come on to, to Kim and, and, and sort of from your perspective. Um, so sort of a, a few brief things that we've done. One was to um, appoint an EDI lead, which this was last year. And so the full time, you know, it's not just an add on, it's, it's a proper job and um, a very busy one. I mean, the person that does that, that role is, you know, it's got a lot of initiatives underway. And you know, from an internal point of view, we really wanted to look at sort of what we could do to support our people. So we've done things like supported grassroots um, employee movements. So we've had things like the Menopause Cafe and um, neurodiverse um, panel groups as well and um, training and awareness events like yourselves um, at Armour. And then sort of looking, you know, externally what we can do. So organising um collaborating with cross-industry groups so we've got we're on various boards there and we're like a couple of them are the higher education sustainability initiative and business in the community and we're really just trying to you know play our part to have a voice there and actually you know bring that the learnings we can from what we're doing to them and vice versa um, and then from sort of a publishing point of view we've tried to just reassess what we're doing really with our authors and just to see like if our our guidelines meet those accessibility needs and you know if they're working for neurodiverse authors and so that's another area that we've looked at um we've looked at um like you were saying Sapna we looked at our recruitment um and our performance processes as well and just sort of where we can improve those that's what we're doing I mean I like 
I think um, Jacob said, um, you know, this doesn't happen overnight. It's not something that, you know, you just click your fingers or we'll have this training session, this workshop, and it's all going to be fixed. I mean, it is it is an ongoing process. And then sometimes things that are obvious, make sure to be obvious, maybe aren't. And, you know, and it's going back and actually thinking, well, what can we do? What can we do um, even in small ways to change things? And it could just be a small tweak, which would have a massive difference. And so last year we supported various uh, sort of, groups that are underrepresented really in research so you know obviously we've there's been a lot with gender but we supported the women in academia support network we collaborated with them on various um, campaigns and, and helped them with a, a book they were publishing and then we had this huge commissioning focus on indigenous research um, and I mean that's that's been fantastic to work on I mean I personally was involved in that quite a bit and you know we've had reports that were focusing on them we commissioned obviously the research and we were having advisors and we just putting them in the spotlight really in any way that we could we involved them in various campaigns whatever we were doing and I just think it'd be wonderful if we can just continue to do more and more of these initiatives to, you know that can have a positive change um, but like I say there's so much more that we need to do um and I'd be very interested if I um, could come to Kim now just to sort of give us some ideas of, of what IOP um, publishing is doing in this space and, and sort of what what challenges there might be and, and where you see this sort of heading. Thank you. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. And it's already I've learned so much from listening to you all. So thank you for sharing. Um, we We kind of began our diversity journey as a company around 2019 when we first actually made it officially part of one person's role um, and that was a part-time person and it was just a bit of their role so very much like everyone else said it's kind of it was an add-on you know if you have spare time it'd be great if you could get to you know fix the world's problems um, but we we really found that as time progressed um there was a real desire for change from the ground, like from the staff. And what they what they were really feeling was that some of the processes that we had in place were not fair or equitable to the customers that we were serving. So thinking about our authors and our reviewers. Um, and then the murder of George Floyd really kind of brought everything to a head for us um, and, and for wider society. And it really became a talking point for almost every member of staff now is, how can we be part of a positive change? We need to do more. We need to invest more. We need to put some resources behind this. And what we didn't want to do was put out any kind of performative statement that made it sound like we, you know, taking these issues really seriously, but not actually doing anything really of substance underneath it. And so um, we moved reasonably quickly with some of the ideas that had really just been sitting sort of on desks, not getting much airtime we were able to actually put some of those in place really quickly because suddenly everybody cared and everyone was really interested um, and one of the first things that we did was we looked at our journals which are physics journals and they follow the single anonymous or single blind as it used to be known process which is that the reviewers know who the authors are that are writing the work that's being reviewed and we actually said, a number of us came from a, a more of a social sciences background, like, why are we doing it like this? Surely there's bias here because you're you're not just assessing the research, you're also assessing the person that's written the research. And um, we went away and did some literature reviews and looked at what had been published and we were like, wow, yeah, there is definitely some bias here. Um, and so we trialed giving authors the option to anonymize their work. Um, 
and very quickly it became clear that it was popular and it was going to make a difference. And so we actually committed very quickly to rolling that out across all our journals, that now all authors have the choice if they want to put their name on their work, they can, but they are under no obligation to. And we're now at a point where we're about 18 months into that, where all our journals have had this opportunity available and we can see what difference it's making. And it's so interesting there definitely is bias in the single anonymous system. Um, and what's geographical is the is the one where I see the biggest difference. So if I can take two regions as an example, authors from Africa and authors from the Middle East have double the chance of their articles being accepted if they take their name off their work. Double. Um, that is, to me, like head exploding. <laughs> um, I think that's absolutely fascinating and such a compelling evidence-based reason to say this is why we should do it we should be doing this um we know from other industries recruitment for example we should be trying to take things like names and ethnicity and age off cvs we know that why we haven't applied that to scientific research and you know the way we um the way we assess that kind of research we're really now just starting to catch up um so that data's been really really interesting other things that we've been putting in place um, and, and it's all linked together, really, is trying to change the demographic makeup of our gatekeeping community. And by gatekeeping community, I mean the people who are making decisions on what we're publishing. So the reviewers, the editorial boards. And what we know, again, more from the published literature than anything else, is that the demographics of the gatekeeping community influence what gets accepted and what doesn't. So people typically are more likely to recommend accepting work if it's done by people that have the same demographic characteristics as themselves and of course like the vast majority of other journals and publishers most of our editorial boards are you know middle to senior management white males working in the western world on very traditional kind of research themes and topics um and it really that reading that kind of literature about the homophily and in that kind of assessment really made us think we need to make a change. And this isn't a performative change. We need more representation from a wide range of demographics on our editorial boards and in our reviewer pools because they're influencing what we're publishing. You know, we, we absolutely need that representation. And that's something we've really focused on. Um, we've put in a few technological steps to make it more easy for us to do it. So we've actually built um, like a reviewer finding system which is just internal for us, but it helps us look for people from minority groups so we can sort of search. We're not displaying those people's characteristics, but we can ask for our search results to be um, people from lower to middle income countries or, you know, women or any kind of underrepresented group that we collect data on. Um, so there's some really great work that we're doing there, but we've combined not only that technological initiative with training and that's absolutely critical to it all our staff now go through mandatory unconscious bias training it's also available to all our board members we've rolled out a reviewer training program as well which is free for all our reviewers but again considers things like how to assess a manuscript fairly and not be distracted by who wrote it and so on um, and, and a little bit about the theory of bias um, and that combination of tactics is proving really successful and we've seen our our invitations to researchers from lower to middle income countries for example our reviewer invitations I mean double in the last three years 
you can't do that without making a real conscious effort. And that's something we've we've still got a very long way to go, but it's a really, really promising first step. It's really exciting, isn't it, to feel that you've seen in a very short space of time, you have made such a difference and you can already see the impacts that it's having on the, on those communities and um, it's only going to grow. And I think sort of just more collaboration and, and just discussing how you've done it, I think is really helpful because it is, you know, taking the advice or the guidance or you know what's worked what hasn't the challenges um that we can just learn from one another because it's it's it is about that if we can share that knowledge and and why wouldn't we because we want to make this you know want to make research publishing practices and and you know we want to improve edi in in research so if we could we can share this this wealth of knowledge and and know-how it would be you know be really helpful and i'd like to ask all of you um starting with um jacob um if you could name one thing, small or big win to improve EDI and so it's something you could do sort of soonish, what what would you do? I think, and this is uh, stolen from Kevin Guyon and his book, Queer Data. I think it's in every context to ask who's in the room because that will help a lot both when it comes to the team and when you think about management, but also when you think about, because I think that's we talked a bit about it here. I think the idea of open science and particularly open data will give some tremendous challenges. Uh, and it's not open only about publishing, but in the end, I think publishers will end with a lot of the problems when things go wrong in this area. And I think sometimes asking the question, who's in the room? Representation won't solve it all, and we can't have everybody in the room. If people aren't in the room, we need to develop competences to look at data and everything else in order to do this. So, yeah, who's in the room? Wonderful. Love that. We can keep that in our heads. Um, Sapna, what would be yours? I would say don't go it alone. I think there is a lot of work going on out there. Um, there are a lot of people who can help. Um, you know, for example, I know that um, the Royal Society of Chemistry, who are one of our EDIS members, have got have led on the joint commitment for action on inclusion and diversity in publishing that's brought together 56 different organisations. So there is a lot of work going out there. They've developed minimum standards. You don't have to start from scratch just because that's where you are. Actually, look at the people who are that stage ahead of you ask them to, for help. You know, we often pair up members and things like that to help them learn from one another. Um, go join go join movements, go join um, the people who are already working in this space um, and collaborate. This is not an area where we need to get competitive. Wonderful, thank you. And um, Kim, what would be yours? Probably because I work with a lot of scientists, but data, data is so critical to getting movement in this space. You can go in with a feeling and a perception, but until you actually have data to back it up, it can be quite difficult to change some mindsets. So I would say as evidence-based as we can make it, let's collect and share data, um, obviously in an ethical and legal way, um, but let's make sure that we're actually collecting data and showing the impact of some of these changes that we're making. I think I'll actually challenge that a, a little bit because I think a lot of universities will actually use that as a as a way of excusing they can't do anything because they can't collect data on, let's say, sexual orientation and, and gender identity and uh, race, stuff like that. And the moment they can't collect data, then we can't do anything. I would actually say action comes first 
because it, this is about it's about building trust here, and you don't get trust by asking people who don't trust you for for their data. You're right. But I, I see your point. We had a really interesting experience on this with Arma um, because essentially our initial attempts to gather data from our community failed for various reasons. We couldn't and we we had a really strong conversation about the fact that we did not want that to hold us up. It was something that was happening in tandem, but um, you know, essentially our first attempts for technological reasons, for it just, we weren't able to, to gather it the way that we wanted. And I do think data collection's incredibly important and um, Edith have done a whole project um, around the DAISY guidance around maximizing the responses that you get how to build that trust that, that Jake's talking about but it, it really shouldn't stop you from acting um, but I do think they they go hand in hand you need to be building your evidence base for the next stage as you're you're acting on the first one. You're, you're absolutely right. It, it really can be used as an excuse for not doing anything. And that's some of the resistance we've had, actually, when we've been trying to persuade some of our board members and journal communities that this is a change we want to make and here's why. And they've sort of said, well, you know what, we'll do it in a year when you come back and show us what happened. Um, and, and that's what I mean when I say data is useful for changing where there's resistance. I think it's incredibly useful in changing the mindset. Um, a lot of people are very willing and open to making a lot of these changes without any kind of robust evidence. You can literally just say, this is the right thing to do. And they agree with you and you can press forward. Um, so no, in, in no way should it be used to hold things up, but it can be a very, very powerful tool when you meet resistance. Amazing. Thank you. So we've got there just, you know, if you can't do anything else, but you can do who's in the room, make sure you've got your represented, collaborate, if you start you don't have to start from scratch so get together and if people do need to be persuaded you know some people will act but if not get that evidence get that evidence base in there if, if you can and you know why not if we can gather that information I want to thank all three of you for joining me today and um, it's been really interesting to speak to you I think we could probably talk on this for another three hours easily just straight here <laughs> um, but hopefully we'll talk a bit more about the progress that everyone's making and um, I wish you all the success in, in everything that you're doing and to make a difference and, and you really are making a difference so thank you thank you for having us thank you Thanks for having, having us Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find more information about our guests and a transcript of the episode on our website. I'd like to thank all of our guests for today's episode, along with podcast producer Daniel Ridge and the organisation This Is Distorted. <laughs>